our last Wednesday night over the summer. And we will pick up in September, right after Labor Day, I believe, with the book of Jonah. So we'll pick up right where we left off. Tonight we're going to look at Obadiah. We'll start off tonight talking about Obadiah. What do we know about this guy? Or really, I guess I should say, what do we think we might know about this guy? Um, because some of it is kind of debated. So, Obadiah. His name literally means servant of Yahweh. And so whoever his parents were uh, named him with the hopes or the expectations uh, that he would grow up and that he would serve the Lord. So his name means servant of Yahweh. This is the shortest book in the Old Testament. Anybody read it this week? Shouldn't have taken you very long to read it. Obadiah, what'd you say up there? Make a joke up there? No. Read at work? You read it at work. Nice. Very nice. Shortest book in the Old Testament. Um, his name means servant of Yahweh. Jewish tradition says that Obadiah was an Edomite who converted to Judaism and was a descendant of Eliphaz, friend of Job. Jewish tradition. So you can go back and read in Job. Job had some buddies who showed up and were not very helpful in giving him advice. One of them was Eliphaz. And tradition says that Obadiah was a descendant of this guy, an Edomite. Keep that in mind. If, on, your, on your notes, you just circle. Jewish tradition is that he was an Edomite uh, who converted to Judaism. That's not in the Bible. You understand that? That's just Jewish tradition. Orthodox tradition, and by Orthodox, I mean sort of the Eastern equivalent of the Roman Catholic Church, right? Orthodox churches. They believe that he was the official who found Elijah during the drought. You remember Elijah was sent to declare that there was going to be a drought, that it wasn't going to rain, and it didn't rain for a long, long time. And so uh, he was the guy that was sent by the king to find Elijah. And uh, also, tradition says he was the third soldier sent to Elijah by Ahaziah. Um, so you can, look up, you can look up those stories in 1 Kings 18 and 2 Kings 1. Uh, if you remember the, the first story, Elijah shows up and he tells the king, it's not going to rain. You guys are wicked, God is punishing you, and then he takes off. And they're looking for Elijah, and they can't find him. Nobody knows where he's at. And uh, these different people get sent, and there's a man named Obadiah. We don't know if it's the same one. Some people think it was. This guy named Obadiah gets sent to find him, and he finds him. And Elijah says to Obadiah, why don't you go back and tell the king I'm here? And he says, I can't do that. And he's, Elijah's sort of like, well, that's what you're here to do, to find me. You found me, go tell him you found me. And he says, no, no, you don't understand. We've been looking for you. And every time we think we found you, you disappear. And everybody who comes back to the king and says we found him, then we lose you, gets in trouble. So if I go back and say, I found Elijah, you're going to disappear and I'm going to get my head chopped off. 
and Elijah says, I promise I won't do that to you. And so some people think that this was the guy. Um, there's another story in 2 Kings 1 where uh, Ahaziah is sending messengers to Elijah and they're going with soldiers and every time somebody goes and gets close to him, they die. They get blown up by God. And finally, Obadiah gets sent. And we don't even know if these are the same two Obadiahs, but it's two guys with the name Obadiah and it's pretty close together. And so tradition says that this guy shows up and before he gets blown up, he says, please, please, please don't blow me up. So you can read that story for yourself. Uh, that is tradition, that it was this guy. The problem with that tradition, although it's nice stories about Elijah, is that if this was our Obadiah, he would have had to live a long, 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 long time to be the guy who wrote this book. So again, take that with a grain of salt. Uh, I think... I looked this up this week, and I didn't. I should have wrote, uh, wrote it down. I think there's 12 people named Obadiah in the Bible. And so maybe he's one of those guys, maybe he's not. Maybe he's just his own Obadiah. And uh, when you study something like this, that's just one example of the danger of relying too heavily on a concordance. If you know what a concordance is, it lists all the words in the Bible. Sometimes people study the Bible by looking up all of the occurrences of a word in the Bible and assume that they're all talking about the same person or they're all talking about the same thing. So when I was a summer missionary one summer, this pastor uh, was going to show me how to preach sermons and he said, it's easy, you just pick a word in your passage and you look it up in the concordance and you find all these verses that have the same word in it and then you talk about those verses in your sermon, that's all you got to do. Like, well, what if those verses are not talking about the same thing or it's different? It doesn't matter. It's the same word. You just look it up and that's how you, it takes five minutes to get your sermon ready. And his sermons were about as good as a five-minute sermon would, you would expect to be. So don't do that. Here's the honest truth. We don't really know anything about this guy other than that his name means servant of Yahweh. That's what we know for certain, okay? Um, the important part of this book is not who Obadiah was, but it's the message. And are you ready for this? The message of Obadiah centers on God's enemies. Now, you know that we live in a day and age where a lot of people get the cold chills and goosebumps when you even suggest that God would have enemies. And some people are really uncomfortable with that. And some people are so uncomfortable with it, they try to separate the Old Testament and the New Testament and say, well, look, the picture of God in the Old Testament is a guy that was angry and he had enemies and he was grouchy and petulant and vengeful. But in the New Testament, Jesus shows up and it's way, way different. Jesus had enemies. We've seen that in Luke. Jesus warned his enemies about serious, serious things. We're going to see that this Sunday morning when Jesus warns his enemies about hell. And just jot down on, on your sheet if you want to look up a verse about God's enemies, James 4.4, 4, which, by the way, is in the New Testament, that says, if you want to be friends with the world, you will be enemies of God. So God does have enemies. And so we, you've got to get over that uncomfortableness that is sort of just present in our society. And uh, when you get over that, you understand Obadiah is a message to and about God's enemies. So... Obadiah is a minor prophet, and uh, there they are. He's number four. 
And I've showed you this uh, most of the weeks we've been in the Minor Prophets, but here's the timeline of how these Minor Prophets fall. They don't go exactly in order. So Hosea, Amos, Micah, Jonah, all before the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Okay, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, after the northern kingdom falls, but before Jerusalem in the, in the southern kingdom of Judah falls. So right there in the middle. And then the next group is Joel and our guy tonight, Obadiah, wrote their books right after Jerusalem fell in about the 6th century B.C. So that's the timeline we're talking about. And then three minor prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, after the exile, after everybody comes back. Um, do I have one more slide after that to put up? There's the timeline if you want to see how they fall. Joel and Obadiah, right after Judah gets taken into exile by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, but before they come back from the exile. So that's where they fall. In the history of Israel, we've talked about this each, uh, each and every week, it's during the exile. Okay? Babylon comes, conquers the southern kingdom, haul a lot of the people to Babylon, uh, set up their own sort of puppet government, and that's when Obadiah wrote his book. Um, here's a unique thing about Obadiah. Obadiah is the only book in the Bible written to God's enemies, not to God's people. Um, the only book in the Bible written to his enemies, for his enemies, not for God's people. Written to the Edomites. Lots of other books in the Bible, to be clear about this, lots of other books in the Bible talk about God's enemies, especially in the prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. But this one is directed not to Israel, not to Judah, not to God's covenant people, but to the Edomites, who were enemies of God's people. And so you can go back and you can look in, I gave you a verse here, Genesis 25, uh, you can look at the beginning of the Edomites. So if you just go back in your brain to Genesis, God comes to a man named Abraham who was married to a woman named Sarah. And it's actually Abram and Sarai, but you know the story. And God gives them children miraculously in their old age. And Abraham gives birth to two boys, one through Sarah, one through one of his wife's maidservants. And his two sons are who? Abraham's sons are Ishmael and Isaac. And God says, Ishmael is not the plan. That's not Sarah's son. And you tried to do this on your own, and that's not the plan. Isaac is the plan. So the promises go from Abraham, then they go to Isaac. And Isaac uh, marries a woman named Rebekah. And they have sons, and their sons are named Esau and Jacob, twins. The first one born is who? Esau. And the second one born is Jacob. And culture said Esau gets all of it. And God's plan was Esau's not my guy. And through the wickedness and the scheming and the plotting of Jacob, who's not a good guy. God didn't pick Jacob because he was a good guy. He was a complete jerk. But through his conniving, scheming, plotting, 
Jacob gets the blessing. Jacob gets the inheritance. He gets all of this stuff from his brother. And you can read about that. Genesis 25 tells the story, uh, tells it again in Genesis 27. So here's what you need to understand. Jacob and Esau, brothers. The promises to Israel flow through Jacob. In fact, God comes to Jacob and renames him what? Israel. This is Israel. Esau becomes Edom, right? Edom sounds like red in Hebrew, and Esau was a red-headed guy, hair all over his body, and his family becomes, there you go, red-headed guys are awesome, he becomes the Edomites. So you got the Israelites and the Edomites. And you think, just in your brain, this begins, these two nations begin with a family feud, with one brother ripping off the other. And it's the good guy, or we like to think of as the good guy, ripping off the bad guy. It's Jacob, God's man, ripping off Esau. And so that's how the whole thing begins. Many, 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 many years later, when Babylon comes and conquers the southern kingdom of Judah, and Jacob's family, finally the last of them, get hauled into exile, Esau's family, the Edomites, are standing right there watching the whole time. They do nothing to help their kinsmen. In fact, they sit back and they laugh at it and they wait until Jacob's family gets hauled out of the land and then they go in and plunder all their stuff. And so this is just a feud. This is a rivalry. These two nations do not like each other. They hate each other. And uh, the Edomites, for the most part, lived in the hills. And so I'll show you a few pictures. Anybody know what that is? Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever seen Indiana Jones? Right? They go there in Indiana Jones. They film, they don't go in it, but they film outside it and then pretend like they go in it. This is Petra, and it is in modern-day Jordan. So any, anybody been to the Holy Lands in here? One? Did you guys go to Jordan? If you travel to Israel, this is what I've been told by people who have gone to Israel. If you travel to Israel, you have to sneak into Jordan. You're, you're not allowed to travel between those countries because the border is so tight. And so I, know, I have a friend who went, and he said, we kind of snuck into Jordan, and then you have to sneak back into Israel, which sounds kind of risky to me. But they did it because they wanted to go see this. And so this is Petra, and they just carved cities and buildings and homes and stuff into the rock. And so if you want to get to this, you have to go down a little passageway that looks something like that. That's the same building. Right, And you've got to walk down between these two cliffs. And then if you're on the outside of this sort of ravine, looking in, it looks like that. And so there's just big rock mountains. And that's just one example. You can Google this, look at Google Images, find all kinds of buildings and homes, things they built into the rocks. So you're the Edomites. You live in the hills. You have this kingdom sort of in the rock. And if an army wants to come besiege your city, what do they have to do? This big army has to go single file and march down this hallway to get in and walking around. It was almost unconquerable, especially when you think about how ancient nations fought wars, right? They got a whole bunch of people together, they went up against a city that had walls, and they got buckets of dirt, and they started piling the dirt up at the bottom of the wall. Guys getting shot with arrows, stuff dropped on their head, they didn't care, just start piling the dirt up. And you pile it up, and you pile it up, and you pile it up till you have a nice ramp, and then you just walk up the ramp into the city. 
you lost a lot of people doing that, but that's how they got into these walled cities. We can't really do that here. You just got to take your big old huge army, get in a line and walk in, and the Edomites would sit inside the city, inside the hills and the rocks, and just pick you off one at a time as you walk down there. So if you're the Edomites, they had this feeling like nobody can conquer us. We're not the biggest, we're not the strongest, we're not the richest, but who's going to come conquer us? No army can march in here. We're untouchable. And they had this mindset that they could not be conquered. And so keep that in the back of your brain. Let's read Obadiah. Not very long. Beginning in verse 1 says, The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Here's the motivation behind this warning of judgment. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. Do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, so shall it be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they never had been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They, they shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau. 
And those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria. And Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Shepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So I know in, in that short 21 verses, there's a lot of places that you're not familiar with. We're not going to try to pin all of those down. You can look up a, a map in the back of your Bible or, or uh, find resources online. You can try to pinpoint all of those if you'd like to. I know there's some nations and some peoples that maybe you're not exactly familiar with. That's okay. We're not going to focus on the details of all of these people. We're going to look at the big picture. And the big picture is God is saying to the Edomites, when my people, your brother, got carried off into exile by the Babylonians, you stood by and laughed and clapped and cut them off as they were trying to flee. You finished off those who weren't killed by the Babylonians. You went in once they were gone and you stole all their stuff. You rejoiced in their day of calamity. Therefore, calamity is going to come upon you. It will happen. I'm promising you that I'm going to destroy you. That's the message of the book. Here's the big lessons that you need to take away from Obadiah. Okay? These are kind of lessons that might apply to us today. Number one, God hates people who are proud. You can see this in Obadiah. You can see it in the book of Proverbs. You can see it from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God is not the least bit amused with pride. And we have a tendency to tolerate it. And we tolerate it in ourselves because no one else can see it. So we're not always shamed by it. We can let our pride sit in our heart and nobody necessarily knows that it's there. And nobody thinks poorly of us. Because we don't put that on display for the world to see like we would put on display a heroin addiction. Or murder. Or adultery. It's just sort of a secret thing that lives in our hearts and the book of Obadiah reminds us that God hates people who are proud. Obadiah 1, 2 to 3. Thus says the Lord, concerning Edom, I will make you small. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You sit up in the rocks and you say, no one can conquer us. You're a fool. You're prideful. And I'm going to get you. God is angry about it. Edomites were prideful because of geography in the United States we may feel safe and secure and be prideful because of money because of military because of uh, maybe even geography in the United States that we feel somewhat isolated from other nations who may be a threat uh, to us maybe we take pride in family. You say, well, my family doesn't have it all together, but we've, we're a lot better put together than that family. You think my family's crazy? You should see the other side of my family. They're the crazy ones. We look a lot better than them, and we sit back and we take pride in that. Maybe we take pride in our church, and we say, man, did you hear what's going on at that church? Those people can't get their act together. Man, we just, we have pity on them. Poor people, they can't get their act together like we do. 
take pride in our church, take pride in our jobs, in our education, in our power, in our possessions, all sorts of things that we take pride in that, that we allow to give us a false sense of security. The Edomites took pride in rocks, and God said, you think you're safe and untouchable because of that. And God may look at people in the United States and say, you think you're safe and untouchable because of all these other things. You're a fool, just like the Edomites. Here's an example for history, okay? World War II. Uh, France on the left, Belgium up there on the top, and Germany on the right, okay? Nazi Germany. The Nazis start rattling their sabers and threatening to do this and threatening to do that. And France says, you know, we probably ought to do something to defend ourselves here. This would probably be wise and prudent. And so all along our border, you can see there's a solid line on the bottom and then there's a dotted line. All along our border, we're going to build fortifications, right? They didn't build a, a wall like the Great Wall of China, but fortifications and military installations and, and different things to keep an invading army out. The whole length, they did this. But they put their heads together and they said, you know, we're friends with Belgium. I don't know what you call a person from Belgium. Anybody have any idea? A waffle. We're friends with the waffles, and they're not that threatening. So we'll just put weak fortifications there. Not too, Belgium is not going to invade us. Germany is going to invade us. So they spent 10 years on that solid red line right there on that border with Germany. 10 years. And they built it up big. I, there was no army marching through that solid red line. And they got done with that after 10 years, and they said, you know, we feel pretty good about this. We're safe. And what did Germany do? Did they try to go through the solid red line? No. They said, Belgium doesn't have anything. We'll go into Belgium, and then we'll go right through your weak fortifications, and we'll come right into France. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, nothing to it. And here these people are with this master plan thinking, we're safe. Look what's between us and disaster. No army's going to march in here. And we look back on that and say, you're a fool. How stupid could you be to not see that this would happen? And God's looking at the Edomites and thinking, you really don't think one of these days your number's going to get called? Just because you live in rocks? You don't think somebody's going to figure this out, how to attack you, how to conquer you, how to pillage you, how to destroy you? You're fools. And God looks at people in the United States and says, you think you're safe, you think you're secure, you think disaster can't touch you? Don't be prideful. God is not amused with pride. Number two, God hates people who oppose his people. Hates people who oppose his people. So in Obadiah, that's verse 10 to 14. We read it. We won't read it again, but... The point of all of that is, you had a chance to help your brother. You had a chance to help my people. And instead, you laughed. And instead, you took advantage of them in their day of trouble. He's not amused by that. You see the same thing in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. So, there's a man, and his name is Saul of Tarsus. And he is going around, rounding up Christians, throwing them in jail standing by at their execution, i.e. Stephen, holding the coats for people who kill this man, right? He gets letters 
to take a road trip and round up Christians and haul them back to prison. And on this road trip, on the road to Damascus, Jesus shows up and talks to him. And what does he say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul doesn't say, well, it's not you, it's them. Because the idea in the Bible is if it's them and the them is God's people, it's God. Jesus says the same thing. What you do to the least of these, you do for me. I care about them. And if you don't care about them, then you're not caring about me. And the people stand back and they say, Jesus, we would have gladly welcomed you into our home. We would have gladly fed you. We would have gladly given you the shirt off of our back. And Jesus says, yeah, but you didn't do it for my people. So you didn't do it for me. It's the same idea. God hates people who oppose his people. Number three. God promises justice for his people and for those who oppose his people. For both. Justice. For his people and for those who oppose his people. The idea here is that God's people will be vindicated and his enemies will be judged. Look at Obadiah verse 15. The day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. This is really the motivation between uh, excuse me, the motivation uh, behind what Jesus means when he says, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, right? Hold your spot in Obadiah and look at Matthew chapter 5. Just a few pages to the right. Matthew 5. Starting in verse 39, Jesus said, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who begs and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You look at some of those things and you say, Jesus, do you just want us to forget about justice and what's right? No, he just wants you to believe that God will make it right in the end. It's not your job to make it right now, it's God's job to make it right in the end. And you see this in the book of Revelation. You read in Revelation about Christians in heaven asking God, when are you going to go down there and make it right? When are you going to bring justice on those who dwell on the earth? And God doesn't say, oh, I'm just going to turn the other cheek. It's no big deal. He says, it is mine to make it right. And I will bring justice on them. Wait a little bit longer. And then I'm going to make it right. And so God promises justice for his people and justice for those who oppose his people. Last lesson is this, number four. God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Did you notice in the, uh, Lucas, can you put the picture up, uh, the third picture of Petra? Those are all tourists, right? 
you walk down the, the cave deal and you go to the carved out buildings, you understand there's no Edomites living there today. Right? They don't live in that city anymore. They're gone. Somebody came along and figured out how to attack them and how to conquer them and how to kill them. And the same thing that happened to Judah being hauled into exile happened to the Edomites. Right? God kept his promises just like he said he would. And look at this promise at the, the very end of Obadiah. Obadiah 1.21 says, Saviors will go up to Mount Zion to rule the mount to rule mount esau and the kingdom shall be the lords saviors going up to zion to rule mount esau and the kingdom shall be the lords okay ends with a promise and the promise is to the edomites and the promise is you're going to get conquered you think you can't be you will be and one of these days my people who you just saw get carried out of this land will come back and saviors will go up with them to Jerusalem. Just like they got hauled out of here by Nebuchadnezzar, they're going to come right back in because I'm going to bring them in here. And the kingdom will belong to the Lord. Now think about that. The only book in the Bible written to God's enemies ends with God promising there will be a kingdom, and it will be mine. The day is coming where there will be a kingdom, and it will be mine. And take your spot in Obadiah, and you circle Obadiah 121, and you turn to the right, just a few pages to the right, and you go to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1. Mark. 1.14 says that after John was arrested, Jesus came in to Galilee, probably 20 miles from Petra. Jesus walks into town and he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom's come. God said it was coming. Now it's here. And the only book in the Bible written to God's enemies is a book saying one day the king is going to come. He's coming. The kingdom will belong to me. So you can laugh. You can persecute them. You can take pride in your, in your power or your security or all these things. You just need to understand one day a king will come and the kingdom will belong to me. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm the king that God promised, and my kingdom is here. Daniel did the same thing. Think about Daniel. We talked about Daniel a few weeks ago. Daniel was one of the guys, when Jerusalem was conquered, that Nebuchadnezzar hauled out of the land into Babylon. So he got hauled out right in front of the Edomites. Edomites waving goodbye to Daniel. Bye, Daniel. Have fun in Babylon. We're going to miss you. We're going to steal all your stuff at your house. Adios. There goes Daniel. Right? And Daniel, while he's there, has a vision. Daniel 7. And the vision is what? There's one like a son of man, and he has a kingdom. And the kingdom extends over all the peoples, and all the nations, and all the languages, and all the tribes. Everyone. 
And he's saying, Daniel, in exile to Nebuchadnezzar, to these pagan kings, I know your kingdom is powerful, but you are not the king. A king is coming who's going to rule everyone. And Obadiah is saying the exact same thing. That this kingdom that will belong to the Lord will extend over Mount Esau. right? Not just going to be the kingdom of Judah, but over Esau and over all of the nations. And we understand as believers that that's fulfilled in Jesus. And so Obadiah, like all of these Old Testament books that we've studied so far, Obadiah is pointing us to Jesus, driving us to Jesus, saying, we're ready for the king to come, we're ready for the king to come, we're ready for the king to come. And you turn to Mark and the king says, I'm here, I've come. You turn to the book of Revelation, a preview of the end, and it says that this king is not just the king over Judah, but he's the king to rule all kings. The king of kings and the lord of lords and his dominion is an, uh, universal, a global and everlasting dominion. So Obadiah pointing us straight to Jesus. Uh, we will end there tonight and we'll end there for the spring and we'll pick up in two or three months with Jonah. So we'll just pick up right where we left off. I'll pray and we'll wrap up Obadiah. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the lessons that we see in this book. We pray that you would guard our hearts from the temptation to be proud. We know that there are many things that we are tempted to take pride in and to feel security in other than you. And so we pray that you would guard us from that. We pray that we would not be found guilty of opposing your people, of standing in the way of, of your church. Father, we want to trust you for justice. We want to understand that vengeance belongs to you and, and understand that in the end you will make all things right. And that we don't have to worry about that or fret about that. And Father, we thank you that you always keep your promises. Promises to bring your people back from exile and we, we see that you kept that promise. Promise to bring judgment on the Edomites and we look back and see that you kept that promise. Promises to send a king who would bring in a kingdom. And we see in Jesus that you kept that promise. And uh, we live today awaiting the fulfillment of some of your promises. But we know that you keep your promises, that you are faithful to your word. And so we ask that you would give us faith to trust you and to wait for your timing. And uh, to trust that your ways are perfect and your timing is always right. Father, we love you. We thank you for the Bible and how it points us to Jesus. Old Testament, New Testament, all of it. Uh, that it drives us to the main character, which is not us, uh, but is your son, Jesus Christ. And it's through him that we find hope. It's through him that we pray to you tonight. So we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.